Why in 2017 are we still questioning parents' ability to ex- exercise educational choice for their children? This is Education Secretary Betsy DeVos at her Senate confirmation hearing in January of 2017. She's talking about school choice, giving parents the ability to choose what kind of school their kid goes to, private, parochial, charter, even online schools, if they feel their local public school isn't doing a good job. At a tech conference in Utah, she explained it like this. The simple fact is that if a school is not meeting a child's unique needs, then that school is failing that child. Think of it like your cell phone. AT&T, Verizon, or T-Mobile may all have great networks, but if you can't get cell phone service in your living room, then your particular provider is failing you, and you should have the option to find a network that does work. 90% of students in the U.S. are educated in public schools. Most are assigned a school based on where they live. In DeVos's model of school choice, students would receive vouchers, or a set amount of public dollars, that would follow them to whatever school they choose. Critics say this would create inequity and allow federal dollars to go to private and religious institutions. But school choice advocates say it would give kids assigned to underperforming schools the opportunity to go somewhere better. And under the current administration, this topic of school choice is getting a lot of attention. As you know, this president and this administration has been very vocal in its support for that notion. Um, The specifics of how that will be accomplished remain to be seen. Those specifics that remain to be seen are what got Sarah Butramovich thinking about DeVos's proposals. So if she were given sort of unfettered ability to do whatever she wanted to the U.S. school system, what would it look like? And then what parts of that hypothetical can we actually look at what has played out in reality in other countries? Sarah is a senior investigations editor at The Heckinger Report. These arguments about school choice in the United States, they don't have to be purely hypothetical, purely theoretical. We can look at other countries and see what sort of messy, complicating factors get in the way of, you know, this ideal version of school choice that that some people talk about. From APM Reports, this is the Educate Podcast, a collaboration with the Heckinger Report. I'm Stephen Smith. So on the whole, we in the United States go to public schools that are assigned to us because of where we live. I mean, we generally go to a school close to home and You reported on three countries, Sweden, France, and New Zealand, that have allowed parents and students to choose where they go to school and what kind of school they go to. Why are these countries doing this? So there's actually a lot of countries across the world that have sort of more robust, large-scale choice systems than we do in the United States. Um, And they do it for many of the same reasons that uh, school choice advocates here espouse when when they talk about what the potential benefits of increased choice would be, Uh, particularly in Sweden and in New Zealand. This really was an attempt to improve the overall quality of education in the countries. Um, The idea was that if schools are competing for students, um, they'll do better and bad schools will close and, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats and and all of those things. So it, it really has been an attempt to introduce these market principles into education. And other countries, like I said, have just done it on a larger scale than we see here. How do they go about doing it? So it's a little different uh, in the three countries that I went to. In New Zealand, no 
student is assigned a school based on where they live. So a parent and the student, if the student's old enough to, you know, have input, uh, can kind of have their pick of schools around them. When it's time to enroll your child in school, you kind of take stock of what your options are and you select one. So even if you end up going to your neighborhood school, it's still an active choice because that's not the default. There is no default. Um, In Sweden, they have these private schools that are actually more akin to charter schools in the United States. They are publicly funded. They have to follow the national curriculum. They are inspected by by the government. The idea is if you want to leave the school that you are assigned to, um, you can go to one of these these independent schools, or as they call them, free schools, um, at no cost to the family. And then in France, um, again, most people go to their neighborhood schools, but they really heavily subsidize private schools there. So if you want to get out of the public school system, um, the subsidization allows the private schools to really keep their tuition prices low. So that means that most families, um, their might be, you know, a public school and a private school in a town in, in any given small town um, that you can kind of take your pick from. Advocates of school choice say that um, it gives kids who are born into poor performing school districts options to get into better ones. Was school choice in the countries you looked at lifting kids and out of poor backgrounds into better schools? I'm sure that for individual students in those countries, that was the case, just like it is the case for individual students here. But it's one of the things that makes it hard for school choice to do that on a large scale um, is actually transportation, which is really boring but really important. So in New Zealand, for instance, you know, I talked to one mom who was not happy with her school, but she didn't drive. So she didn't have any other options. So even though, you know, I've been throwing around choice as this idea that people can go anywhere they want, um, the reality is it really depends on, on where you live and what the the transportation options are to get from where you are to the school you want to go to. So unless you live in, you know, a poor neighborhood that has an extraordinary school 10 miles away, it might not really make that much of a difference for you. A lot of school choice advocates, including Betsy DeVos, say that having schools compete for students creates an incentive to perform better. The more choices we have, the more competition we have, but also the better product or the better learning opportunity for the kids. Now, in New Zealand, was competition among schools making the schools better? I mean, not really, is the answer from what I found. Um, And that's kind of backed up by the fact that their performance on the international assessment has not really changed that much. And to be fair, New Zealand schools have always done fairly well and continue to do fairly well. So they have a relatively strong school system overall. But what I found talking to many schools was that the fear of losing students was not a motivating factor in trying to give them a good education. They, they got into teaching to give students a good education. And, and this the competition um, put pressure on them in different ways, but not necessarily in ways that really impacted the classroom. It was more about um, how they tried to present themselves to parents, the fact that, you know, they made an effort to keep their websites up to date, to get in newspapers when students had various accomplishments. So they did feel competition and they did react to it, 
um, just not in a way that would necessarily translate to something that you could pinpoint and say, aha, that that made that academic change in that school. Well, your story found, in fact, in terms of the parents choosing where to send their kids, it, it seemed that the economic circumstances of the student population, how wealthy their parents were, seemed to be a, an important factor in the decision-making process for uh, for parents and therefore ending up with more segregated schools, segregated economically, because the rich were going with the rich and the, and the poor folk didn't have a chance. That's been something that research has has demonstrated in a lot of places that have experimented with school choices, that it does have this kind of unintentional consequence of increasing segregation in, in many places. And so in New Zealand, what happens is, is really interesting that they have sort of this very well-intentioned and, and logical funding system for their schools where they break them up into deciles. Decile just means tenth. So schools in New Zealand are sorted into 10 levels based on the family income of the students. And your your lowest decile school has a higher proportion of poor students and your upper decile school is more wealthy. And they kind of allot funding based on that. So more funding streams go to the poorer schools. But what that means is when parents are sitting down to make decisions about where they're sending their kids and, you know, they're told this is a decile two school and this is a decile seven school, um, they can make assumptions, um, probably not even intentionally, about the quality of this school, just based on the fact that one school is going to have a much more wealthy student body. I don't know much about Papakua High School, but I've heard it's um, got a bit of trouble going there. Um, I'm in zone for Papakura, but I prefer my daughter to go to Rose myself. These are parents talking about a decile one school, the lowest decile. It's from a documentary by the New Zealand Herald. We are a low decile, which does put an instant first impression on people thinking that we're a bad school. Just because we've got a low decile doesn't mean we're a bad school. New Zealand's Minister of Education has discussed ending the decile system as early as next year out of concern that too many parents aren't choosing their local schools. In the U.S. over the past couple of decades, there's been lots of talk about school accountability. People want to see data about how much students are learning. Public schools now face all sorts of penalties if their students don't perform well on tests. Some critics of school vouchers point out that private schools and charter schools aren't held to the same standards. The argument goes, if students take public education dollars to attend a private school, shouldn't that private school be required to meet the same standards as a public school? They should be very transparent with the information. That's Betsy DeVos at her Senate confirmation hearing. Democratic Senator Tim Kaine had this exchange with DeVos about accountability. If confirmed, will you insist upon that equal accountability in any K-12 school or educational program that receives federal funding, whether public, public charter, or private? I support accountability. Equal accountability for all schools that receive federal funding. I support accountability. Okay, is that a yes or no? That's a, I support accountability. Do you not want to answer my question? I support accountability. Okay, let me ask you that. In your reporting trips to Sweden, France, and New Zealand, you found that the schools were having trouble with accountability. 
Yes. So that's been a huge issue um, in those countries, in the United States and in other countries around the world. I think that's something that kind of crops up again and again when you look at what's happened with school choice. And it's worth noting that all of the countries I went to are places that have had the system in place for decades. Um, Since 1992, Sweden has had its system. Since 1989, New Zealand has had their system. And the the France subsidization of private schools actually goes back to the late 50s. Um, So I I think it's really interesting to note that they've had this for decades and they still kind of haven't figured out. um, How do they know if it's working? Uh, What are the best ways to measure school quality? And then what are the best ways to get that information to family? So in Sweden in particular, they're really grappling with this because their scores on this international assessment known as PISA uh, have really gone down since 2000. They used to kind of be, you know, among the top tier countries and, and now they are more middle of the pack. What's gone wrong in Sweden? How much of it is to do with the changes that were made? I would say probably everyone agrees that the changes made in the late 80s, early 90s combined start the situation. Here's Sweden's Minister of Education talking with the BBC. His name is Gustav Friedelin. Everyone has their own explanation on which of these reforms in the late 80s, early 90s that was the most problematic. If it was the decentralization of the school system, if it was the introduction of, of free schools, the marketization of the school system, if it was uh, the, the free parents' free choice, which one of these reforms combined? So they are really wondering how much of this, if any, can we blame uh, or you know ascribe to the the independent schools in the country, um, and how much is other things? And the problem in Sweden is they just really don't have a good way of answering that question because there's some the ways in which they try to hold their schools accountable are fairly weak right now. I can't imagine that there would be parents saying. Let's go back to a system where I have less choice in order to get better schools. Right. That's a really important note to keep in mind, is especially in New Zealand. um, I spoke to a lot of parents there, and everyone really liked that they had choice. Um, They took it really seriously. So even if they weren't looking at, you know, what a researcher might consider objective measures of of a school being good or bad, They were still thinking about it. They were still considering factors that were really important to them, and they really appreciated having that. So I I do think that, especially after having these kinds of systems in place for decades, that the, the culture has really shifted to be one where it would be very difficult politically to back away from choice. So where is the school choice movement now in the U.S., given that we've got an education secretary who is in favor of it? Does it have more momentum than it did before the Trump administration? Not as much as I think people expected. She certainly is using her bully pulpit to talk about school choice and, you know, her repeated uh, talking about how it's the individual child that matters and we need schools to focus on that. We should be funding and investing in students not in school school buildings, not in institutions, not in systems. The biggest victory I think that Betsy DeVos has probably had on the school choice front is that in the tax bill, they included uh, a provision that would extend 
what had previously been um, savings accounts for college tuition to use for private tuition. But as some experts pointed out to me, that really benefits uh, wealthy families and not poor families that she you know, talks about using vouchers to help these families access private schools. So there hasn't been a ton that that she has really accomplished that advanced the, the school choice agenda. That's it for this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us how you found this podcast and why you listen. You can get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at Educate Podcast. That's one word. You can also send an email to contact at apmreports.org. And if you want more people to hear this story and this podcast, do us a favor, write us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find our work. We heard a lot from listeners about our last episode on Mario Martinez. Uh, My name is Shane Doyle. Shane Doyle doesn't know Mario, but they went to the same community college in Maryland. I thought I'd let you know, in case it interests you, that I can identify with a lot of what Mario talked about, although he certainly had a far more difficult childhood. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. I'm also the only one of the people I grew up around to go to college, and all the friends I have who did go to college are people I've met as an adult. I didn't know what I planned to do with college or why I was going, beyond the fact that I had been convinced it was essential if I ever wanted a different kind of life. What I was looking for was intangible. The ability to decide what I want to do and then do it rather than feel stuck. I'd say it was the sort of social ladder Mario spoke of, and I learned it was far more difficult than simply going and getting a degree, although I'd say that was a must. I'm now in law school at the University of Maryland. College for me was about trying to gain the ability to decide what I wanted to do with my life. If you'd like to tell us your own story about what you got from college, we'd love to hear from you. APM Reports is producing a documentary about colleges and economic mobility. We want to know what people gain and what they lose when they change social classes and what higher education has to do with it. To help us in reporting that documentary, you can tell us your story. Did college change your social class? And what is social class? Is it about how much money you make or is it something else? Tell us what you think by filling out a brief questionnaire at apmreports.org documentaries. The Educate Podcast is produced by Alex Baumhart and Chris Julin. Catherine Winter is our editor, and Emily Hanford is our senior producer. This episode was mixed by Michael Osborne. On the next episode, we'll hear from John Marcus at the Heckinger Report. He's going to tell us about the growing number of colleges that are cutting their liberal arts majors. In 1967, one in five students majored in the liberal arts. Now one in 20 students major in the liberal arts. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM.